Chapter Nine of Where the Path Breaks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Where the Path Breaks by Captain Charles de Crespigny. Chapter Nine. The thought filled the man's soul and surrounded it as water fills and surrounds a ring fallen into the sea. Barbara had loved him. There was nothing in the world outside that thought. At first it caught him up to heaven, and then, just as he saw the light, it flung him down to hell. Fool that he had been, never to see the truth under her reserve, while seeing would have meant standing by her, keeping her forever. But he had let her go, and it was too late now, even for explanations. He had shut an iron door between them, and standing with her on the other side of that door was a man who called her his wife. There was the situation, and he, by his silence, had created it. He was condemned to perpetual silence, for it was the wildest, most hopeless mockery of all which brought to John Sanborn a knowledge of Barbara's love for John Denon. Fate had been laughing at him while he wrote his book with a message of peace for her, laughing wicked and cruel laughter, because through the message he was to come into touch with Barbara and learn the tragic failure of his sacrifice. That seemed to Denon a vile trick for life to play upon a man, and whipped by the seven devils of thwarted love which had entered into him, he cursed it, cursed life and fate, himself and Trevor Darcy, and was ready to deny justice, even justice blindfolded. His heaven lasted for a moment at best. For many hours Cain and Abel in him fought each other in hell. But he had been down in depths well nigh as black, and had struggled out to the light. Remembering this, he struggled out once more, at last, and perceived that somehow, to his own wondering surprise, he had stumbled up to a higher level and a stronger footing than before. Within distant sight he visioned those serene mountain tops where light is, the light that never shines on sea or land for those who have not suffered. Only a short time ago he had begun daily to realize and tell himself that strength and steadfastness alone really mattered, that suffering was but a flame which passed. This was still true, as true as it had ever been. A man could choose whether the flame should consume or purify him in its passing, and here and now the immediate hour of his choice was on the stroke. At the end of that day of turmoil, Denon seemed still to be looking down at himself, as a crouching prisoner in a dark underground cell. Yet he knew that he was his own prisoner, not really a helpless captive of the fate he had cursed. Fate had no power, after all, to make men prisoners. It was their business to find this out, and to prove that they had only to release themselves in order to be free. He felt this to be an abstract fact of life, and if he meant to live, he must make it concrete. The underground hole where he so miserably crouched was but the cellar of his darkest self. If he but thought so, 
he had strength enough in him to fight his way up into the high, bright tower which was also himself, a tower with a wide view on every side, over the sunlit mountains from whose peaks he could already catch some glimmering vision. Even the thought of the mountaintops, that they were there, shining, and always had been and always would be, made Denon lift his head and draw deep breaths into his lungs. That part of him which had yearned to write the book for Barbara, and had conquered difficulties to write it, came like a strong brother to the rescue of a weak brother, and pulled him up by main force out of the dark. He tried to reassure himself over and over that he need never again crawl back into the darkness. He had seen the view from the tower, and the tower was his to reach. Denon had not worked out for his own guidance any clear-cut philosophy of life. He had just stumbled along with strength for his goal mark, trying now and then to recall some whisper or note of music he had caught from the other side before he came back. He had written down in his book, for Barbara, all that had been tangible under his pen. But now, knowing she had loved him, he saw how much more help she needed than he had given, and how much more, how very much more, he owed her. Not that he had deliberately stood aside and left the girl unprotected. When in the German hospital, he had drifted back to a knowledge of realities past and present. He had seen almost at once that, even if the news were unwelcome, he must not let his wife live in ignorance that she was still bound. It was only after hearing from Severn of Barbara's marriage to Darcy that he had said, John Denon is dead and buried, and his ghost laid. He had meant to make the supreme sacrifice for Barbara's good, and there had been no shadow of doubt in his mind that he was right in making it. Now he asked himself if even then it might not have been best to let the truth come out. No one was to blame for the mistake in a dead man's identity, nor for what had happened afterwards through that mistake. Barbara would have had a hard choice before her, yet she might, if she possessed strength and courage enough, have chosen from the two men who had come into her life the one she loved. The whole world would have rung with the tragic story, but at the end Barbara might have lived down the tragedy. If he had been her choice, he would have helped her to live it down, by the gift of such love as no man had ever given to a woman. As it was, he had dared to play the potter. He had taken the clay of Barbara's destiny into his own awkward hands, to shape it as he thought best and he had let the vase break in the furnace. He could never make it what, but for his meddling, it might have been, yet he must piece the delicate fragments together if he could, not caring for, not thinking of, his bleeding hands. This, then, was the debt Denon owed to Barbara, and to pay it he saw that he must begin by remaking himself, before he could give her anything worth the having. He must become a thing of value in order to be of value to her. Those faint whispers and snatches of music from the other side of the hidden river, which he had jumbled into the war wedding, 
confusedly, hurriedly, fearing to lose their echoes, he must now carefully gather up again and sort out with method. He must dip into his brain where half-remembered thoughts seethed in solution. He must see the rainbow in every teardrop and crystallize it into a jewel for Barbara. Thus developing himself, he might have some worthy offering for her at last. He could not write that day, nor the next, for it seemed that the only things worth saying were the things which would not let themselves be said, things which swept through the background of his mind like a flight of chiming bells in the night, elusive as waiting souls for which no bodies have yet been made. But though he could not write, he called thoughts, which he had once seen and let go, to come again to him. He sent himself back along the road he had traveled beyond the milestones. He searched by the wayside for beautiful memories he had dropped there, and some of them he found grown up tall and white as lilies in moonlight. Whatever he found was for Barbara. On the third night after the revelation, he had gathered something to give her, and strength enough to feel sure he would not put into his letter the question which must not be asked, What was the reason you couldn't tell your husband that you loved him? Denon wrote with a typewriter, as he had written before, on blank paper with no address, because it was better for Barbara to come in touch with him only through his publishers. In that way, she would be spared any sense of constraint she might have to feel in knowing that he lived among her neighbors of long ago. She had given him her name frankly, and she might fear some inadvertent mention of it to people she had met as a child. If he were to be of real use to her, he thought, he must be known only as a distant voice, an ear, a sympathy almost impersonal outside his letters. Denon wrote to her that he was sure, entirely sure, the man she loved was not too far away to know. You will only have to send him a thought, and it must reach him behind that very thin wall we call death. The way I imagine it, such a message goes where it's directed, just as when we call central through the telephone. They, whom we speak of as dead, have their own work to do and their own life to live, so perhaps they don't think of us every moment. But surely we've only to call. They may not see us in the flesh any more than we can see them in the spirit. But it came to me when I was very close to the other side that our bodies don't enclose us quite. We're half-open jewel boxes, that let out flashes of emerald or sapphire or diamond light, according to the strength of our vibrations, or aspirations, if you like. I begin to realize that these are much the same thing. It is the flashes of light which are seen and recognized by the ones who have passed farther on. The lights are our images, as well as messages for them. But when I say farther on, it's only a figure of speech. They are not far off. We can see the rain. We can't see the wind, even when it is so close we can lean on it like a wall. 
and so we can lean on their love, strong as a wall, stronger than anything visible to us, because love is the strongest thing there is. You see, life wouldn't be worth living for any of us. It wouldn't have been worth creating if the dead really died. The glory of the deathless dead lights our way with the bright deeds they have done, till we come where we can see for ourselves that there's no dividing line. The milestones end. That's all. They're not needed any more. I heard other people talking of these things when I went where the milestones end. Since then, I've wondered why I didn't know the things before. Listen to your hopes, and you can know without waiting, because hope is the voice of instinctive knowledge, and soul instinct is what we were born knowing. Believe this, and you won't have to stumble slowly up as I did with a hod full of old precepts on my back. You can plane down from the sky with your arms full of stars and live with them as I live with the flowers in my garden. The accident which put me into close touch with what we call death put me out of touch, mentally, with life on this side for a while. An operation brought me back. Just as, hovering between the known and the unknown, I let my past drop, so on my return to it I had for a while no memories of the borderland. My brain busied itself picking up lost threads. I recalled the instant when I thought I was meeting death. A great shock when all supports fell away as from under a ship that is launched, and I plunged into measureless depths. Beyond that sensation there was blankness. By and by glimpses of something bright came and went, oftenest in dreams. The efforts to seize their meaning waked me with a start. It is only now that I am beginning to hold some of the best meanings, I think. I have come back with a little stardust, even I, and by its glimmer in good moments I try to interpret my own dreams. If I read them rightly, I've told you only an old, old truth in saying that there should be no such word as death, or grief for it among the living. We've only to lift the veil of death to see the face of life, a wonderful shining face with no pain in its smile. Looking into its eyes, what we do, instead of dying, is to flow over our own narrow limitations as growing vines flow over the high wall of a little garden. We escape out of bounds into the boundless and are part of it. Don't, then, let the life of the man you have loved be darkened by feeling that he has darkened yours. Stand up, lift your head, and you'll see how your sorrow will have to lie down at your feet as shadows lie. When Denon ended his letter, he found that in trying to help Barbara, he had helped and heartened himself. He had unfolded a flag and waved it to the sky. He went out, though it was after midnight, and posted the letter. Later he was able to sleep as he had not slept since the night he wrote the last words of his book. As usual, he dreamed of Barbara, but this time it was a new dream. 
he saw himself painting her portrait, and when he waked in the sunrise he wondered why he had never tried to paint such a likeness from memory. He could see her as clearly before him as though she had come to the door, opened it, and looked at him. The thought gave him something more to live for. He would do the picture, and so bring Barbara herself to the Mirador, where, guessing nothing of the truth, she sent her thoughts to John Sanborn. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline